0: Welcome to Trauma-Informed Parenting, where you can find information about adoption, foster care, parenting a child with a capital letter syndrome, such as ADD, ADHD, FASD, SPD, on the spectrum, etc., and trauma-informed parenting, all in one place. I'm Kathleen Guire, your host, mother of seven, four through adoption, former National Parent of the Year, author, teacher, and speaker, but more important than any of those things, I'm a parent just like you. I know what it's like to raise kiddos with trauma histories and capital letter syndromes. I used to feel as if I were the only one struggling, and because I felt that way, I isolated myself. I don't want you to feel alone in your parenting journey. So, grab a cup of coffee and join me for Trauma Informed Parenting, a coffee break podcast. Hi, Kathleen Guire here. Welcome to this episode of Trauma Informed Parenting. Today, I have a very special guest, my daughter, Audrey. Say hi, Audrey. Hello. Audrey is my oldest, and she is spending a couple weeks here with her kids, my grandkids. And so I talked her into doing a podcast episode with me because one of the reasons I wanted her to talk is because she is a real life parent raising neurodiverse children. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how parenting looks different for you and why. So, right now, I am the parent of six. My oldest
1: are twins, and they're 12, almost 13, and my youngest is almost four. Um, Out of my six kids, five of them have autism diagnoses. Uh, The sixth one is autistic, but he hasn't been formally evaluated yet, and we've kind of run the spectrum of the spectrum. Um, I have hyperverbal, early reader, um, older kids, and then the youngest was nonverbal until almost three. Um, So we have level ones, level two, and level three in our house.
0: So when you're saying all of those words, that's one of the reasons I wanted her to talk, is because I know when we get a diagnosis for a kiddo, it's kind of like we start learning all these words and they're being kind of spat at us really quickly and so that's why I wanted Audrey to talk because not only does she know a lot about this she knows the words so as you're listening she's going to share some words that maybe are new to you or unfamiliar to you but as you listen and she talks about how her kiddos are parented then it might help you, it will help you in your parenting journey.
1: I just want to jump in really quick and make um, a note, because I find that a lot of people I talk to don't know this, but the levels for diagnosis for autism that my kids have, level 1, level 2, and level 3, a lot of people think that it means like high or low functioning. It's actually not. The only reason we do levels in the States is because they are... Um, required for insurance. It's an indicator from the doctor or the psych who evaluated your kid to the insurance company about how much support your kid will need that insurance will have to cover. Um, So if you're level 3, you could could have a verbal kid that's level 3 but needs a lot of intensive OT and behavioral therapy. Um, You could have a kid with lower verbal skills that's still level 1 because they're basically pretty independent and they don't need as many interventions
0: so yeah yeah. that's good to know because that's you know we hear that a lot level one level two and you know in our minds we're thinking i know i used to think that it was like level one that's the least autistic you know (laughs) so they're all equally autistic but it depends on
1: how many support services they need um whether you're in the public school system or you're seeking um, private therapies, which is mostly what we do. Um, And those levels can change over time. They're not static. You can have kids that drop down to level two as they hit puberty. You can have kids that go up to level two or one after being at three for a while.
0: So I'm going to throw Audrey for a loop here. I didn't put this on her questions, but she can do this. Just kind of give us a basic definition of autism
1: so autism is a neurodivergency which means that even though it's treated kind of like a medical problem and can have medical problems that go along with it or comorbid um, it's actually a difference in the structure of the brain Mm. um, which Mm. is why different therapy approaches and different diets and um different treatments might help manage it but aren't going to cure it because ultimately you can't really change the way someone's brain is functioning on that level it's the whole structural system um and it's characterized most by how an individual interacts with the social world um And that can present in a lot of ways. Um, So sometimes kids who can appear more social have missed autism diagnoses Hmm. for a while because they can kind of mimic a social behavior without really understanding it or fully participating in it. But um, all of those components of autism link back to that relationship between self and between society or culture um, in a way that makes it harder for a kid or an adult to pick up on social cues or to integrate themselves with groups or friendships or to seek help with managing basic things. For me, I'm also autistic and that's one of the things that I struggle with is that my whole life I was told how stubborn I was and I am pretty stubborn, but also it wasn't until I was an adult that I was able to articulate that when I failed to ask for help with things that I was struggling with, it wasn't because I was determined necessarily to do it without any help, it's that it did not even occur to me to ask for help. That social component of like, oh, there's another human that may be able to make this easier for me, Mm -hmm. did not even occur to me. I still have to remind myself now Like, I can ask for help with this, not because I'm trying to be completely self-sufficient, but because it takes effort to even remember that there is a social formula for reaching out and changing how I'm dealing with something.
0: Exactly. Social formulas are difficult for me, too. And I know that listeners have heard me talk about, you know, I don't have an official diagnosis, but I'm also on the spectrum, and I've... Talked about how my daughter helped walk me through taking the test and watching videos and reading material. And it's this that is the Tony daughter Atwood video. <laughs> that Tony yes. Atwood video gets everybody.
1: <laughs> I can make sure you have a link for your notes.
0: Yeah, that would be good because that you know this is the daughter that helped me. And when I took the online quiz and I sent her the little graph results, and she's like, Mom. You're more neurodiverse than I am. So now looking through the lens of my autism back through my past and some of the things that Audrey's talking about with herself, the same for me. And it really helps me be, I'm extremely empathetic to begin with, which is kind of a, a myth about people who are on the spectrum that we're not empathetic. We are empathetic it makes me more empathetic for my kiddos that i raised and now for my grandkiddos.
1: although i am it makes me so mad that you're autistic because <laughs> because i you know me i'm pretty good at clocking people like mm-hmm. from behaviors or interactions like um i just have that radar cuz i have that experience and you were my blind spot <laughs> i did not like when you send me that the picture of your graph, I was like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense, but I did not
0: see it at
1: all. Because oh we even goodness. used to joke that I was your autism whisperer, because I would have to explain things about my youngest brother.
0: Yes, exactly. Remember
1: when he kept he kept ripping off his sheets every night? Mm-hmm. And you were like, why does he do this? And I was like, it's because he likes the silky feel of the mattress more than the
0: sheets. <laughs> Yes, you were my autism whisperer. But I missed you. (laughs) And here I am. Keeps me humble. And it's funny because every time I get to talk to Audrey, I'll just like, she she probably feels cornered sometimes because I'm like, hey, listen, remember when this happened? And now I know why I reacted this way. And now I know I was doing that. I could not feel cornered because it's my (laughs) special interest. (laughs) And one of the reasons I wanted Audrey to be on the podcast, not only to explain that, was um, the other day, she had an interaction with one of her kiddos, and I said, you basically used every single instead of tip. And the instead of tips are tips you can use instead of traditional parenting, because it doesn't work with these kiddos. Traditional parenting, if you've tried it, you know it doesn't work, but Audrey, share with me. Than what you were telling me when I said you basically just used every instead of tip.
1: I, I have the the instead of tip like pamphlet that you made taped to the bookshelf in my dining room. And I take pictures of it on a regular basis to send to friends for kids or for themselves.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly, for both. So it's not just for kids, it's you can use it on yourself too and... I will, I actually even created a whole workbook to teach you how to use these instead of tips. And it's instead of tips for kids who have experienced trauma or have a capital letter syndrome. And I'm just going to read these instead of tips really quick. Instead of a lecture, use simple language, about 8 to 12 words total. Instead of waiting for behavior to intensify, respond quickly. Instead of giving orders, offer simple choices. Instead of just correcting, give immediate retraining and a redo. Instead of expecting a child to know, clarify expectations. Instead of isolating when a child is dysregulated, keep the child near you. Instead of only noticing the bad behaviors, offer praise for success. Instead of taking it personally, remember there is a need behind the behavior. Are there any of those that you want to hone in on?
1: Um, all of them.
0: Okay. <laughs> but
1: um, I, I'm going to start with the last one because it just reminded me of something I hadn't been thinking about when we were going over uh, notes earlier. Um, because I was just talking about this with friends the other day. The um, the need behind the behavior, that I think, is a thing that a lot of people get hung up on. Because if a kid is having that meltdown about being told no about something that isn't safe for them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or um, that is not actually a, a health need. Like, they want ice cream or candy. Or they want to run into the road. Like... I think that sometimes parents get stuck with like, well, I would address a need differently, but this isn't a need. Mm-hmm. They're not really communicating a need. right? And I think that one of the distinctions that really helps is when you remember that kids aren't just communicating needs, they're communicating perceived needs. And those right. perceived needs are real to them. And in the case of, like, the road, their perceived need might be freedom, even if that isn't safe for them at the time. Right. Or their perceived need might be getting something that makes them feel good, and they might need a substitute for that. But, um, I mean, it doesn't have to be, like, a different food treat, but even when the thing that they're communicating about isn't actually what we would recognize as a need. It's a perceived need to them, and it's always connected to something else. Because uh, just from psychological literature, we know that kids, especially young kids under the age of 10, are very, very rarely genuinely manipulative for no reason. Mm-hmm. Some kids learn manipulative patterns, but it's still about a perceived need. They're not usually trying to just screw people over.
0: Right. It might be a mistaken goal, yeah. but that doesn't mean that they're sitting there in their lair plotting and yeah. planning. <laughs> like... Stroking their, their bond cat. <laughs> so is there another one you wanted to talk about? Um
1: Man, uh, the instead of isolating when a child is dysregulated, keep the child near you, um, which is, that's super counterintuitive for American parenting because we're so used to grounded, go to your room, sit in timeout. Right. Um, and I think the two things that I, that we handle differently in our home about that is that timeouts are with an adult we actually have a specific spot kids sit in for time out when we're at home but we're sitting there with them and there's like a clear end to the time that they are there but often that time doesn't start until they're calmed down if they're screaming and crying um especially the three-year-old right now the, the timer for timeout doesn't start until he's calmed down and ready to sit there and engage with us. And sometimes that means a 30-second timeout is 15 minutes of us sitting with him first, helping him de-escalate because he's not in a space where he can process any kind of correction, even if the thing he did was actually wrong. Right. Um, the other thing is that I, I'm also autistic. I have sensory needs. I have bad days and um, I have one kid in particular who gravitates toward staying near me when they're already upset Mm -hmm. but they also handle that by constantly letting me know they're upset by moaning over and over again
0: I won't say a name (laughs) and um,
1: it it's really hard for me sometimes because I can't completely tune them out They know that if I'm trying to ignore them, they'll escalate. Um, And there are times where I have to change how I'm approaching it instead of just waiting it out near them. And then sometimes I do have to just ignore them until they get worn out, even if I'm in the same room. And then there are other times where I just have to tap out. Mm -hmm. I have to get my husband and be like, it's your turn because you can be patient with this kid right now. And... I am close to snapping
0: right so you need another parent to come in and take over and co-regulate and Audrey will help me regulate even today you know it's been um they've been here for a week and we have so much fun and we've been doing so many things but she's like mom go kayak by yourself for a while
1: you tried to take someone with
0: you and I, I said like, no <laughs> no I this is it. not a teaching moment just go <laughs> and I just needed it and one of the things that Audrey is, and I were talking about the other day that I wanted to mention is um, we talk about how to have peace when your kids are in chaos, which is the name of my book, and it's also the name of free PDF. Uh, Audrey came up with that title, by the way. But we were talking about when you how to have peace when your kids are in chaos does not mean that you just take these tips or that you read the book and it's just magic and Your kid's just going to regulate all the time and you're always going to be connecting. You will be connecting more and correcting less, but when you are able to say, hey, I'm going to take these instead of tips and I'm going to use them, but I'm going to kind of remove myself and my emotions from the situation and let them do the work, it doesn't mean that your child is never going to have a meltdown. It doesn't mean that they're going to just immediately respond. But it does mean that the more that you use these tips, the more that you separate yourself and just just be like, okay, I'm using this. Okay, here's your choice. And I've seen Audrey do these all week, and I see my other daughters use them too. But like, okay, so do you want me to do that for you or do you want to do it by yourself? Do you want this cereal or do you want that cereal? And sometimes
1: I'm giving the choice while the kid is on the floor sobbing.
0: Yes, that's and the I point I wanted to, to bring up. I just have
1: to wait and keep offering the choice when they're calming down. And it might set them off again because they still don't want to make the choice or not be in control of something in a way that isn't beneficial to them. Um and I mean like I still get frustrated and lose my temper these didn't make me a perfect parent and I think that if you get frustrated that doesn't mean that it's it's failing or you're failing um but being consistent about some of these things does make it easier even if it doesn't fix everything like the three-year-old he knows where he's supposed to sit for time out he knows what the the time is for timeout. Um, we usually have him count to 30 because he really likes counting. And it's a good way to make sure that he's actually calmed down and engaged. Um, and sometimes he sits in timeout and counts right away and he's fine. And other times it's the 15 minutes of trying getting him to de-escalate and waiting him out and keeping him safe. And then other times it's five minutes. And other times he tries to bargain with me and tries yeah. to... <laughs> Count two. Count two. Like, no, buddy. It's still 30. Um, but they do give that distance when you you know how you're approaching it
0: instead of just reacting. I right. I think it's easier. You have a game plan, and then you are going to... The intensity in, in yourself is going to go down. And the intensity in them over time, because you're using the same parenting tips over and over and over again and consistency is super important And I think too when you have
1: this intentional approach that you you know you're approaching parenting in a, a way that isn't traditional because that wasn't working for you and you have these tips or this script that you're using um it also it doesn't just give you a bit of that emotional distance but it helps you remember that you're doing it to help the kid Mm -hmm. to help the kid develop those coping skills instead of just doing it so the kid is convenient for you which is like that's the thing I struggle with too especially if I'm distracted or feel busy is I want kids to behave because it's convenient for me not because it's better for them.
0: Right, and it's, it's often in our culture the approach is we want our kids to behave because we want to be perceived as good parents, and, and that's not really a great goal because you can change the outward behavior with a look or a threaten or a yell or whatever, but you're not teaching your kids the coping mechanisms or in that um, when her youngest needs to count to 30, He's essentially going from his downstairs brain to his upstairs brain just by counting. So those sorts of things, those are coping mechanisms that are going to serve him for the rest of his life.
1: I think, too, in the, the lecture versus simple instructions was hard for me. Even now, sometimes I struggle with it, but it was really hard for me when I was younger and when my oldest boys were younger, because they were hyperverbal. They Mm -hmm. talked early. They had large vocabularies. I'm a wordy person, and I felt like I was making more of a point if I lectured for two minutes. Mm -hmm. And it was not sticking when they were already upset. And having those, um, those simple instructions and giving choices and having to be flexible about the choices you're giving kids to help them make better decisions um is also a way of focusing on what needs to change for this kid to make better decisions for themselves instead of having the kid behave so they can manage your emotions because we were talking about that too about Mm, how yeah Um, especially for neurodivergent kids, you might think that they aren't very in tune emotionally, but some of them are dealing with such emotional intensity that they're constantly shutting down about other people's emotions or their own. And piling, you're really making me mad, you're really making me angry, you're stressing me out right now. On top of that, um, even if you think they don't understand, um, is not helping anyone and when you have to have those couple words those eight to ten words of simple language instruction or giving them the choices instead of thinking about how you're feeling it's it's easier at least for me to shift to what do I actually need the kid to do
0: right And now, you know, I call them the instead of tips because that's what we say over instead of. Instead Instead of, of, yeah. And we were talking about how the culture is, how we see out in public. And I'm not judging or shaming anyone. And I'm sure I've done this myself. But it's like you're out shopping for the day. You're out running around and running errands. And, you know, mom's tired, so she gets a Starbucks. And then you're telling the kids, hey, you're getting on my nerves. Or, you know, you're really making me angry or, you know, and not thinking about how it's affecting our kiddo who's already probably hungry, probably just as tired or more tired than we are and all of those things. And they can't regulate, but we're compounding that, like Audrey said, by giving them our feelings as well when they don't need to carry those feelings.
1: And... I think one of the other things that is good to remember is that, um, like, it, it's so important to be patient or gentle. And those are things that I'm working on all the time. Like, I'm definitely not there. But also, um, some of these things sound a lot like gentle parenting approaches. Which, I think gentle parenting as an approach has benefits and some um, really good but also it doesn't mean that you have to change your entire personality into right. being a soft-spoken, simpering kind of parent. <laughs> right. Like the like the worst-case scenario for gentle parenting, not the people who are doing it correctly. Um, like, I try to use a gentle voice with my kids or clear instructions, but they're still hearing things like, Hey dude, walk. Instead of, oh, honey, let's walk
0: now. Because
1: that's not me. That's
0: not you. That's me. (laughs) Prosodic voice. Okay, everyone, we're going to go get in the car. I probably drove Audrey crazy when she was little. (laughs) I'm not an infant mother. (laughs) All right, so finishing up here, Audrey's going to share three things parents of neurodiverse kiddos should know.
1: I I was thinking about what the three things would be, and I'm st- I feel like I'm still trying to wrangle my thoughts into order. But one that came to mind while we were talking about all of this is especially if you're not neurodivergent yourself, if you don't have um, you know trauma in your background. Um, I mean this. It, I feel like who who exists like that. Yeah, I don't know any people I talk to. Um, Especially in this day and age. But if you're not neurodivergent yourself, or if you are, but you're just now discovering that you're neurodivergent and you've spent a lot of time masking and you're starting to recognize things about yourself that you had uh, buried or ignored, um, one of the tips is that when autistic kids have meltdowns, even if they are really inconvenient or seem like they're um, over tiny things. Um, as a person who remembers being an autistic child, those things genuinely feel like the end of the world. Your yeah. kid really does feel like the world is ending. They have to taste a food that is like not a good texture for them. They are not gagging to be dramatic. Mm -hmm. Like, it really does create a physical response in their body. If they are panicking or freaking out about a sensory thing in clothing or something that they've touched, um, they are not overreacting. I mean, I'm 35, and I still feel like my arms are burning if they get wet unexpectedly.
0: Mm -hmm. Like,
1: those are actual physical sensations the brain is misinterpreting or emotional stakes that your kid doesn't have the capacity to de-escalate for themselves so i think a lot of times that especially when we're tired because i i mean i forget sometimes my kids are like me and there are still moments where i'm so caught up in like what i feel like are big important things that i'm thinking about that i forget that when they're having a hard time it really does feel that bad to them right they're not doing it just to get attention because they want to suck up all your time even if they might need your time or energy
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um it really just does feel awful to not have that control and to feel like everything is falling apart and ending and nothing will ever be good again, even if it was just because you didn't get to flip the light switch. Yeah. (laughs) um, And I think that's why one of the things um, that we say in our household a lot is this is a real feeling that you have, but it's not an accurate reflection of reality. With my Mm. bigger kids especially, because they have the capacity to understand that. With the little guys, we just tell them, I know you feel very bad, but this actually isn't, like, a terrible thing. Mm. Because they sometimes need us to tell them what the actual stakes are without dismissing them or um, belittling them for feeling that way. Right. And... Um, I have one especially that's, like, also really struggles with anxiety. And I have to tell that child, I know you really feel that way, Mm -hmm. but that's not really the risk here. Let's talk about what the actual risk is.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, Good.
1: the other thing, um... Man, there's so much. And also, my brain just went completely blank. Um, I guess the other thing is that it, this is one that I, when I talk to people who have neurodivergent kids, sometimes they aren't sure who to share the diagnosis with hmm. or when it's appropriate to bring up, and hmm. for my older kids, I let them choose to talk to friends about it if they want to um but i don't bring that up with their friends okay but i do bring it up with every extracurricular teacher every sunday school teacher i tell them ahead of time and Mm -hmm. i'm like it might seem like my kid is ignoring you or they're not paying attention or they're um not following instructions and they're autistic they need you to give them clear instructions they need to you to make sure that you have their attention. I need you to tell me if there's a behavior problem so I can deal with it or it will become a pattern. Mm -hmm. And for my little kids, I say it almost like a shield every time there's an incident. If we're in Walmart and I've got a kid screaming, I tell people who like slow down to kind of look like, Mm -hmm. sorry, he's autistic. He's having a meltdown. We're dealing with it. Like I'm not in crisis, (laughs) but also I'm not kidnapping or abusing the kid. Right. Um, And also in doctor's offices. I don't trust most doctors to remember that my kid is autistic. So whenever we go in for anything, especially if it's a sick visit, I tell them up front, just reminding you, this kid is autistic. They have a disordered relationship with pain Mm -hmm. and with their own body. So mm-hmm. I am going to tell you what we've noticed is different in their behavior, but they might tell you today that they are fine. And they might still have an ear infection. They usually do. Yeah. Um, and I, I just make sure that the people who need to know,
0: know up front. Right. So last thing here, Audrey. I didn't is do three things, but that's oh. okay. I did like
1: five. I did five, but they were only two. I can't count today.
0: That's okay. I think you're autistic. I am. <laughs> so what is your best parenting tip?
1: No, wait. I want to go back. Okay. <laughs> I remember my other thing. What you were saying about how empathetic you are. Yes. Um... I am, I am outwardly the, the opposite of that. Mm. And people have, like, that's always something people have pointed out, um, or that I've noticed about myself, is that I don't have appropriate emotional reactions when other people are in distress, or tell Mm. me bad news. Um, I could tell you that someone we knew had died, and I would say it like I was discussing the weather. And you would start crying, even if we hadn't seen them for 20 years.
0: Yes, true. So,
1: <laughs> true. But um, one of the things that I think is really important to know about neurodivergent kids is that they often feel emotion very, very intensely, even if they don't have the matching social display for that emotion. Mm. So some people have kids that don't look like they feel much at all. And don't act like they notice anybody else's feelings either. But then they also um, have sobbing meltdowns or get really, really angry. And part of that, I think, is if if you don't know much about neurodiversity, you haven't worked a lot with navigating emotions in autism, is that autistic kids have those emotions, but they a lot of times need help identifying them and matching the physical sensation that they have to the emotion... Or the emotion that they have to the social display that they want to show to other people. Because they don't make those connections um, intuitively. And some kids that are super hyper-empathetic will, like you, have hyper-empathy where it's, it's not even... True empathy because it doesn't match with the other person's feeling you can find out that somebody else had kind of a crappy morning and you feel worse about it than they did for yes. longer because it's harder for autistic kids to disengage from those negative emotions
0: right and I was going to add to that like if you see that your child is not doesn't seem like they're having an emotional reaction but then the next day they're like I feel really achy or I have a headache Or my throat hurts. Or they have a temperature. And there's a a book. I don't know if you said you got it already. The body keeps the score. Yeah. Which I've mentioned on the podcast several times. And I've read several times. But you know look into that. Because the body is going to have. Some sort of reaction. Yeah. If you don't have an emotional reaction. You might have a physical reaction.
1: And I have one kid that. It's like that. Like, they have... Sometimes they just cry and cry and scream Mm -hmm. about what seems like the smallest thing. But a lot of the rest of the time, they just look like a blank. Like, even when you talk to them, they look like there's not much going on there. And there is. They just don't have the social display. Right. And then that will be the same kid that comes to me, like, 15 hours later and tells me... Yesterday when this happened, I was really, really, really upset. And I was so angry. Even though they didn't look like they were feeling anything. right? And they're only capable of doing that because we've done so much emotional identification work with matching um, appropriate emotional responses to situations. And sometimes it is guessing. Like, we don't know what the kid is feeling, but the kid is having a physical response. Right. And we're like... Okay, you're upset that your video game turn was over. I think you're probably feeling really frustrated and sad mm-hmm. and maybe angry. And then we talk about what those feel like, and we, it's never just one conversation. But we've done that enough times that now those same kids can come to me and say, I'm feeling really frustrated. Mm. Not sad, I'm feeling frustrated. Um I had another thought, too, and it just left me.
0: Okay, do you have the your best parenting tip on the tip of your mind there?
1: <laughs> um, no, hold on. I'm going to try to remember this other thing. Okay. It was about emotions, but I... No, it's gone. Okay, best parenting tip is actually two tips because I still can't count. <laughs> <laughs> um, my best parenting tips... Um, are find a way to not take it personally. Yes. Find a way to not take it personally because there are so many times I talk to other parents and it's not like I've never struggled with this, but I think I did have a bit of a leg up because of siblings. Because I was, because of illness and work schedules, the third parent a lot of times. Mm-hmm. So I already got to do this
0: yes, round got a lot one of where...
1: I did not have a traditional sibling relationship with siblings. I was Mm -hmm. the person they asked for permission to do things. And they would get angry at me if they got in trouble. (laughs) Right. um, But find a way to not take things personally. Even stuff like making dinner. Like I was just telling you the other day. um, I like to make things that my kids like to eat. I'm cooking for me and my husband. Right. And like the kids, some kids will eat seconds and thirds of favorite meals and some kids will pick and take a bite. But there's so much less pressure on me if I'm like, I'm cooking because my husband and I need to eat. The kids also need to eat and I want to feed them. But I'm not just cooking for them in a way where I feel devastated if they reject it. Right. And, um, that's just an example, but there are so many other things, like, um, the first time one of my kids called me a witch, Mm -hmm. and I had to bite my cheek to keep myself from laughing. Yeah. Because, like, that's... I knew that it was just that kid being angry. Mm Mm-hmm. And they didn't know what to do with how Mm -hmm. angry they felt. Like, they still got in trouble for it, but, um... There are so many things that I feel like there's the potential to feel like your kid is doing at you.
0: Mm Mm-hmm, right. Because
1: it pushes your buttons when they're actually just doing a thing. And even the kids who do push your buttons intentionally aren't usually doing it because they have antisocial personality disorders and are enjoying your suffering. They're trying (laughs) to get something else out of it. Right. If they do have an antisocial personality disorder and are enjoying it, they need other kinds of help,
0: but right. taking
1: it personally still won't help them. It still
0: won't help them.
1: Um, and then connected to that is, um... And that
0: one's on the card, by the way.
1: Yeah, I realized that while we were going over the when tips we look, earlier.
0: When we look at behaviors as needs, we are less likely to take them personally. Um... The other thing is to
1: adjust expectations. Mm. It makes a huge difference if you can just adjust your expectations. And it starts when they're really, really tiny. Because if you expect a tiny baby to sleep through the night, you're going to have so many nights where you're frustrated, where you're like, I don't understand why he won't just sleep. Right. I don't understand what I'm doing wrong that he's waking up this often. But if you're like okay, I know from experience that this particular baby wakes up every hour and a half or two to eat for whatever reason right now. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's an indication of a problem if it goes on it like past a certain stage. Mm-hmm. But when that's within the range for like, normal behavior, if you go to bed thinking, okay, I'm probably going to be getting up in an hour or two. It's still exhausting, but it's less stressful just because you changed your expectation. And that's um, something that's really important with neurodivergent kids. When you Anywhere you go is potential for some kind of meltdown. Somebody getting overwhelmed. Somebody hitting a wall. Somebody being at the end of their rope. And if I think every time we go to the playground... One of them is probably going to fall apart when we leave. And I plan for that. Right. And I plan, like, okay, I need to make sure that we leave when I still have enough energy to help them de escalate, even if that means leaving 10 minutes sooner. Um,
0: right. And, and then
1: it's, if they just get into the car, that's like, a, that's a great day. But if they do have a meltdown and you were already planning that. You know, we might have to deal with this because Mm -hmm. they have issues with change. They have issues with transitions. Then it's the thing you were planning for instead of this is the worst. Why can't we ever go anywhere? This is why we can't
0: leave the house. Yeah, and I've heard parents say that. And I I talked about that. If you didn't listen to Understanding Your Kiddo's Trauma Bucket, I talk about that because if you get to the point where you're you're helping your kiddos co-regulate a lot at home as soon as you step out the door to go somewhere then that potential for that stress that sensory overload you just need to be ready you need to be planning it and that's not being negative that's being proactive and keeping in mind okay maybe you have to take this little infographic and stick it in your purse or stick it in your back pocket or. Tattoo it on your eyelid. Yes. <laughs> Tape it to your forehead. So. Starting to get biblical here. I know. <laughs> Bind it on your forehead. Bind That's it on your right. wrist. Bind it on
1: the door of your house. <laughs> I'm probably getting that wrong.
0: But maybe like have this put on the back of each of your kids' t shirts so that when they're running away from you, you can be like, wait, let me read those tips. So I will make sure that. Um, I link an opportunity for you to get these tips. Obviously, we're not just going to leave you hanging. But thanks for joining me today, Audrey. Wait, wait I had another thought. Okay, Audrey had another
1: thought. It's fine. Um, I had it and then it left. This keeps happening to me today. My brain has been...
0: Well, we've been going nonstop for well, a solid I asked, week.
1: I asked friends to translate that Korean tea box for me and then found the English label on the side
0: <laughs> three hours later.
1: Um, but it was when you were talking about we were talking about expectations. And you had moved on. Oh, that's what it was. The other I'm making this four things, parents of your <laughs> different kids should know. Tagging on a PS. Okay. Um I know that uh, This podcast talks about trauma a lot. And that's a word that sometimes people feel is thrown around too lightly now. They're like, everything's trauma. And that's not true. Like, there are definitely things that are traumas. Mm-hmm. And um, if you have neurodivergent kids and they're exhibiting signs of trauma, even though you're like, we brought this baby home from the hospital. Like, yeah. this was our baby.
0: Mm-hmm. There was
1: no separation from a biological parent. Everything went well. We were there for every birthday. Like, everything that this kid could have needed, they had. And the kinds of ways that we messed up or that life went wrong were within the bounds of, like, a normal human experience. And this kid is still exhibiting trauma symptoms. That is because... The world is inherently traumatic for autistic kids, yes, especially if they have sensory issues, which most of us do. Mm-hmm. um, from the moment that you were born, everything feels and sounds and looks too much or too little. Yeah. And there are times when you are uncomfortable all the time and don't have a way to articulate it or communicate it. That's why some autistic babies are those babies that are colicky and they cry all the time even though it looks like nothing is wrong. She's pointing at me. Oh, yeah, um, you can't see me. <laughs> that was me. And they're... I mean, some autistic babies are really, really chill. And they're, they're just a different profile. But some kids bang up against the world so harshly just from how their brain processes it that living that day in and day out and like I mean I understand that people need daycare that public school is a good fit for some kids but those are also loud noisy environments with lights and sounds Mm -hmm. and smells constantly and even if it's like a necessity that environment just like environments at home can be, can be inherently traumatizing to a kid that cannot communicate that, like, everything is too loud today. Like, the thing that I'm wearing has hurt my skin all day long. And so if you were a parent and you've got an autistic kid who is exhibiting signs of trauma and you're like, we are 99.9% sure that... Nothing has ever happened to this kid. Mm-hmm. It is not your fault. Like, right. there are things you can probably do going forward to help them cope with stuff, but that's just part. It's just part of being autistic. That's why it's considered a disorder instead of just a personality type.
0: Right. And I'm just going to say this so this ends up in the show notes. I did a, a wrote an article and recorded a podcast called. Having a capital letter syndrome is trauma, too, because it is trauma. It is. So we're going to end with that. And any one last thing you want to say, Audrey?
1: Nope, I'm good.
0: (laughs) All right. So this one was a really good one. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to Trauma-Informed Parenting. Make sure you subscribe on TraumaInformedParenting.com to receive a free resource and receive a newsletter plus updates when books or new courses are released. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Podomatic, or Spotify and leave a review so other listeners can find Trauma-Informed Parenting and know the value of the show. You're welcome to send me an email to contact at Parenting.com.